Hello and welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by our first and most popular guest ever on the Richard Hunter interviews, who has kindly agreed to speak with us again. Nick Train co-founded Lintzel Train Limited in 2000. He is the Portfolio Manager for UK Equity Portfolios, and it is the Finsbury Growth and Income Trust around which we'll be mainly talking today. Nick has over 30 years' experience in investment management, and his approach is based on that of Warren Buffett's, involving building a concentrated portfolio of quality companies that have strong brands and or powerful market franchises. The bulk of these are UK companies. This leads to a very different portfolio when compared to the benchmark FTSE All Share Index. So first and foremost, a very warm welcome to you, Nick, and thank you for sparing us some of your time again. Richard, the pleasure is all mine. And actually, after the acumen and insight of that introduction, I think I ought to offer you a job. <laughs> I, expect, <laughs> I expect you could implement this strategy at least as well as we could. Anyway, that was very, very clear. And I thank you for it. Absolute pleasure. Nick, you, you mind you, it's, it's 40 years. It's 40 years. I think I need to just insert that there. I think it is 40 years this year. Perhaps which is not a, surprising in this inflationary environment. <laughs> and sobering, though. Absolutely. Sticker shock, age shock. <laughs> Nick, you recently said that uh, unloved UK shares were offering cheap exposure to megatrends and providing a volume of opportunities. In fact, you went further than that, saying that you'd barely seen such opportunities in four decades of investing. Are there any particular reasons in your mind as to why the UK market seems so perennially undervalued? Well, I mean, the, the reasons are, are manifold and, we, you know, we could easily spend the entire session exploring that. I mean, I think what's most important to assert, though, is that the underperformance of the UK stock market is real. I Forgive me, as you've implied, I like very long-term time horizons. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's just interesting to remind ourselves what a pound, one pound invested in a number of stock markets 20 years ago, what that one pound might have turned into over the next 20 years with dividends reinvested. You know, your one pound invested in the UK 20 years ago is worth about £3.50 today. That's actually not that bad. <laughs> it's, it's about 6% per annum, but it's only just about half what the S&P 500, the big index in the United States, has done. And the NASDAQ, obviously the pure tech index in the States, that's turned a pound into 12 pounds over the last 20 years. So, you know, that 12 pounds on NASDAQ compared to 350 in the UK, that, that gives you a sense of, you know, sadly to me as a career-long UK investor, how much the UK has been left behind. You know, I think what I would say is that I sincerely hope that the UK stock market has unfairly been neglected in recent years and is offering an opportunity today. I don't know that for sure, though, just to be clear about that. I don't know that for sure. Where I do feel, though, on more secure ground is, you know, you mentioned those mega trends, and maybe we'll come back to defining those in a moment. But what I do think is evident is that it is possible to access money-making, let's call them, mega-trends. It's possible to access those 
through perfectly credible UK companies that are definitely undervalued today relative to their global peers. And to me, that's what the opportunity really is. And that's definitely the opportunity that, you know, we're looking to capture within within Finsbury's portfolio. What I'd say in specific answer to the question, why do I feel there are more opportunities today than I can remember in 40 years? There's two things. One, there must be a dozen or more companies that I've been following for 20 years or longer that I've always thought potentially could fit into our strategy, but somehow they never had, partly because they've seemed overpriced. Right now, I think as a result of this prolonged period of global investors kind of dismissing the little old UK, almost all of those dozen are cheaper than they've been as long as I can remember. So so that's one thing that's interesting. I think the second thing, though, and maybe this is even more important, is that undoubtedly over the last 24 months, there's been an increased cadence of new issues and IPOs coming to the London stock market of new, exciting, digital-related growth companies. Now, we don't have our Google or Tesla yet in the UK. Maybe we never will. But definitely, there's an increasing change in the complexion of the UK stock market towards more and more digitally enabled companies. And to me, that's the central reason why you might want to be optimistic about investing in the UK over the next, I don't know, five years or whatever number you want to pick, that the shape of the market is gradually changing, and it's gradually changing to include more growth businesses. So picking up on that, Nick, how pervasive and profitable do you think digital technology is becoming? And at the same time, of course, presumably for any winners, there must also be losers. Uh, Andy Grove, the late lamented Andy Grove, he was the the chief executive of, of Intel during the 1990s and died sadly, I don't know, probably 10 years or more ago now. But Andy Grove said, in the future, every company is going to be an internet company. And he didn't elucidate exactly what that meant. (laughs) But you have to say, just observing your own life, you know, your kids' existence, the way that the world is, that everything is getting more and more internet. And I think we should all be working on the assumption that that's going to continue. I mean, I think, you know, just to pick one example, which... Maybe surprised even me. I I don't want to make too big a deal about this, but nonetheless, I do think it's significant. You know, even a company as some would say resolutely 20th century as Unilever, boring old Unilever. It's in the news right now, Richard. I don't know if you want to talk to me about it later. But even Unilever today can report that 12%, one, two, only okay, 12% of its revenues are online. You know, that's digital delivery of its products directly to consumers growing at something like 30 to 40 percent per annum. I I think that that new distributional channel for Unilever is a surprise even to them how rapidly that's grown. And I'm sure that in 10 years time, the number will be much, much bigger than 12 percent. So I just think it's indicative of, yeah, it's indicative of the way things are. You're quite right. 
more wealth has been created more quickly by digital technology over the last decade, probably than any other decade in human history. But you're also right at the same time, probably more wealth has been wiped out by the impact of digital on, let's call them, 20th century business models. And I don't know, to the extent that we have any skill, the performance in the, in, it will be the judge of that, to the extent that we've got any skill, I have to say, I regard our job essentially as trying to negotiate that transition. Indeed. And in fact, we last spoke a year ago as the world was coming to terms with how to deal with the pandemic and its new variants. Perhaps to some extent we still are. How did the portfolio generally perform, given the strength seen in other markets, probably most notably in the US, of course? Well... Listen, I mean, you, you know, you'll have heard fund managers since time immemorial trying to justify or account for um, well, mediocre or even poor investment performance. I don't know how you'd classify it. I mean, listen, I mean, we were up 13 percent in 2021, and that was poorer than the benchmark, which was up 18 percent. So, uh, you know, I guess I'm mildly, perhaps no more than mildly, given the fact that I have been doing this for a long time, and you, you do have ups and downs. I'm mildly disappointed by that. But I, I tell you, as truthfully as I can convey it to you and your listeners or viewers, I wasn't disappointed by the business performance of the companies that we're invested yeah. in. By and large, our expectations were exceeded, even in some of those shares that, for whatever reasons, didn't work so well for us last year. I mean, our biggest single detractor in 2021 was the London Stock Exchange. Shares were down over 20% last year. And I'm not going to whinge about that. The market is what the market, it's fine. But I think objectively, when you look at what the LSE did as a business last year, which was to close the biggest deal in its history, which significantly increases its exposure to data and analytics, kind of the gold dust of the 21st century. Uh, personally, I think people will look back on 2021 as a pivotal year for the LSE's growth strategy, and we'll see a you know a huge surge in its shares sooner or later. But over that single 12-month period, didn't work for us. No, that's that's fair play, and as you say, it's very much a, a, a longer-term view that uh, most investors prefer to take. In any case, um, well, maybe I'm, so. But the longer term is made up of a succession of shorter terms, and sure. I, I think a year is. I don't think that's an unreasonable time to to look at the relative performance. I, certainly, I would. Yeah, I do. I want to judge: is what we're doing as relevant and value creating as it might be? And if it isn't, I want to understand why. And yeah, as I say, I think for whatever reason that last year didn't work for some of the shares, but I felt more that it, it did work for the companies. Yeah, which leads us on to a recent article which was discussing the trust performance and noted that fashion comes and goes, but style lasts forever. Have you ever been tempted to abandon your philosophy and jump on the latest investment bandwagon? I mean, you know, the one word answer is no. That's that's not because Mike and I and our colleagues think that we've somehow discovered the answer to the investment challenge. Uh, and I promise you it's not because we're complacent. And I promise you 
we dislike <laughs> periods of underperformance as much as our clients do. It's all, you know, it's always a shame when what you're doing isn't working for whatever reason. But but I have to say, I, I do profoundly think that it would be a disservice to our investors to radically change what we do, for good or for ill, because I hope you're right what you said at the outset, that what we do is both consistent and distinctive. And surely it must be of value to investors to be able to access a distinctive, consistent investment approach when they want to. I assume that the last thing that someone who was wondering about buying shares in Finsbury, the last thing they would want is to find out that in two weeks' time, we'd completely turn the portfolio and the strategy on its head. So, I, I, you know, I, I used to run a team of younger investors at, you know, a long time ago at previous, a previous institution. And I always used to say to them, please try and be lucky <laughs> because you do need some luck. But if you can't be lucky, be consistent, you know, because the consistency has a value for the clients as well. So no, we'll, we'll stick to the consistency. Now, you also recently noted, quite rightly, that there was heightened volatility amongst leading technology stocks and that nerves are going to be tested in the coming months. Obviously, the early part of this year has seen something of a rotation away from growth stocks, especially big tech in, in the US in particular. Are we witnessing a lasting change, do you think, or is the rotation into cyclical stocks simply a reflection of where we are in the economic cycle? Yeah, it's a huge question. The The... The railroads and industries and companies associated with the build-out of the railroads in the 19th century, the railroads essentially went from 0% of the US stock market, I don't know, in the 1840s. By 1900, over 60% of the UK stock, uh, sorry, UK, the US stock market was made up of railroad companies and associated industries. Sort of going back to that Andy Grove comment that in the future, everything's going to be an internet company. In the 19th century, everything was going to be a railroad company in one way, shape or form. And I'm certainly, we are certainly working on the assumption that this is still a relatively early stage in a reshaping of global stock markets towards digi digital businesses. And that almost certainly, almost certainly, if you want to meet your clients, your investors, reasonable expectations for returns over time, which we really, really did want to meet our clients' expectations. Yeah. We've got to find ways that make sense to us anyway of participating in that decade-long process. You know, it's easy for me to say, but maybe it's worth reminding people, you know, there will be, who knows, a, a significant minority of the tech darlings all around the world but particularly maybe on NASDAQ, there'll be a significant minority of those which will never earn a profit <laughs> and therefore probably never justify the market caps that they reached six weeks ago. But that doesn't invalidate the underlying historic process that we're currently in, you know, experiencing. I, I, sorry, I sound too pretentious, forgive me. I mean, let me say, we think that... A UK company that is 
centrally positioned to benefit from these sort of internet digital trends is a company called Experian. Richard, I'm sure you know, I, I guess many of the, the viewers will as well. I mean, one of the UK's sadly relatively rare, truly best in breed, world-class data and analytics companies. We bought a lot of that last year. The stock is down in January, I don't know, about 18% because it's selling off with NASDAQ because it's being perceived correctly, actually, of being part of that complex of growth businesses. And I've been buying it hand over fist in January. Um, Now, of course, I can be wrong, but the answer to your question is this a correction or does it mark a fundamental shift away from digital type businesses? I'm answering by saying we're trying to take advantage of the sell-off. Okay. Now, again, Nick, we asked customers to send in some questions. Um, As you can imagine, a fairly full post bag again, but we've whittled them down to just the following four, if that's okay. The first one is uh, that with inflation and financial repression upon us, have you adjusted your portfolio? Looking back over the last two years, there's definitely been a marginal shift in Finsbury's portfolio. Not nothing radical, but there is a higher exposure to businesses like Experian or the London Stock Exchange than there was probably two years ago. So digital winners. And there's also a higher exposure to luxury and premium brands than there was a couple of years ago. And both of those are deliberate. Now, they are deliberate because, well, to put no finer point on it and to repeat myself, actually, we just can't conceive on an investment time horizon, by which I suppose I'm in three or five years, we just can't conceive how you're going to make money unless you own digital winners and luxury and premium consumer branded products. I mean, I don't know. That's the only thing that we can think to do. Now, it happens that capital light digital businesses and the owners of luxury and premium brands probably have got pretty good pricing power during a period of inflation. So coincidentally, it may be that the changes that we were pursuing anyway might make the portfolio even more robust during such an episode as as your, your questioner asks. However, and I'm going to state this as forcefully as I can, it's a mistake to structure investment portfolios around your guesses about what macroeconomic variables are going to do. Because nobody has an adequate record in determining what the next unexpected macroeconomic variable is going to be. It's a loser's game. So I long ago stopped attempting to second-guess economies. Are we going to go for a period of uncontrollable, rampant inflation? I have the faintest idea. I really haven't. But you know, we are only just getting out of an extraordinarily disruptive period for the global economy, you know, impacted by COVID. And you would expect there to be bottlenecks and inflationary sort of glitches here and there. And I'd want to be very, very cautious about extrapolating from what's happened because of COVID to saying, oh, now we're in a period of rampant inflation. I mean, who knows? 
Okay, next question. Uh, your holding of Manchester United hasn't performed well so far. Do you expect this situation to improve? I mean, again, a short answer is, is yes. I've just mentioned COVID. You know, I don't want to make excuses, but COVID has hit, let's call it an industry, if, if we can dignify association football with the term. It's hit that industry very, very hard. I mean, I pretty much every company club has been losing money because there haven't been any spectators coming into the grounds and that's been the marginal cash flow and the source of of profitability that's coming back of course and so that's that's reassuring what i think is evident though is that global fascination with football in general and perhaps manchester united amongst half a dozen of the leading franchises around the world remains as strong as ever and maybe even stronger than ever. I think when you look at digital engagement yeah. of the fans with the club, I mean, it's, it, it's exploding, going up a lot. And I think it's also fair to say, and we read it on the back pages of the, the newspapers pretty much daily, it's clear that very, very, very wealthy people's interest in owning sports franchises, in particular Premier League, football franchises is as strong as ever. You know, Newcastle's just changed hands. The guys just increased his stake in Everton. Didn't Southampton change hands earlier this year? You know, there's a lot of interest in these assets because they're unique trophy assets. And people want to own them. With Manchester United, I won't make exaggerated claims about that franchise, but clearly... We own equity in one of the most unique sports franchises on the planet today. It's an incredible trophy asset. And I think over time, you make money owning rare and unique things. And it, and it definitely is. Do you consider future growth and income much more of a challenge going forward than it has been? Are you finding any value globally? From a domestic perspective, I hope that it becomes more difficult to deliver income growth. And just hear me out. One of the reasons I'm sure that the UK stock market has underperformed the US, as we were saying at the outset, is I'm sure that UK companies have been paying out too much as dividends and not retaining enough in their businesses for growth. You know, because in the end, that that's what we're all up. That's what I'm trying to do for Finsbury is trying to deliver growth. <laughs> and I think that there's ample evidence that UK companies are beginning to get it, that investors want more organic growth. And if that organic growth comes at the price of somewhat lower dividend growth, then I think that's that's fine. That's that's fine. What I would say, though, and I'm just going to say this for effect, I kind of believe it, but you don't have to believe it. I personally, and I think I wrote this, you know, at the end of the year, I, I think objectively, we must be in one of the most happy, we are fortunate to be equity investors in the world today, because we are in one of these relatively rare great leaps forward in terms of technology that, as we were saying earlier, is creating so much new wealth. And virtually every company that I know well, and certainly every company that we own in Finsbury, they can all see new opportunities with digital. 
in terms of their products, their marketing, cutting costs. And I, particularly from the context of the UK, I just don't think that begins to be captured in you know, a stock market that's been so beaten up like this one has. Yeah, makes me feel optimistic, rightly or wrongly, but it does. Okay, um, and we did uh, briefly touch on this before, or, or mention of it anyway. Um, can you give us more details on your feelings for continued investment in Unilever? I have held this stock for over 20 years, topping up along the way. Performance has suddenly been flagging in the last couple of years. The past doesn't have to be the same as the future. I don't mean that, do I? I mean, the future doesn't have to be the same as the past. <laughs> it really doesn't. Um, and things that work for you for years, if not decades, there is no law that says they will continue to work for you for decades into the future. But sometimes the past, you know, it is the only thing that we've got, in a sense, to help us judge the calibre of a business. Unilever has grown its dividend on average, just under 8% per annum for nearly 60 years, nearly 60 years. There are vanishingly few companies in the world that can table such an extraordinary period, decade after decade after decade, of growing value steadily for its owners. I, I do not believe when you look dispassionately at Unilever's brands and market positions and the skills that it has in the company, I don't see why that steady growth shouldn't continue. The products are relevant. In some cases, the products are beloved. I always think of Marmite when I say that, but everybody's got their own favorite brand. And there are there are billions of people around the planet who are only in the last five years, 10 years, beginning to be wealthy enough to use and enjoy Unilever's products. And again, I think that's at an early stage. So listen, Unilever, my God, compared to Tesla, it looks so dull. I know that. But you've got to take things for what they are. It's a formidably strong, conservative business with a perfectly credible opportunity to grow steadily for decades to come. And for myself, I can't see why you wouldn't have it as a part of a portfolio. So we do still. It's got very emotional, very, very emotional, as, as you know, the Unilever story over the, um, you know, over the last week even. And I just hope that there are level heads, I know there are level heads, but level heads in the Unilever boardroom and level heads amongst long-term investors in this company as well, because it would be very, very easy to break something that has done a wonderful job for investors over decades. And that is the end of our readers post bag nick and uh, also the end of the interview so very very warm thanks yet again for your time and undoubtedly valuable insights and thank you viewers and listeners i uh, hope you enjoyed that uh, particular pod and podcast please feel free to like and subscribe and of course you can find much more by the way of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk i'll be back soon with another richard hunter interview bye for now <laughs>